0: All right, good morning. You know, um, listening to Jim pray, I'm like, I was convinced that Morgan Freeman was the best narrator. I, I think Jim could give him a run for his money, man. He could give him a run for his money. Like, who wouldn't want Morgan Freeman to narrate their lives? Now I'm like, maybe I could get Jim to do it, man. This, this talk over my life. I didn't turn it on, I, I, I got a love-hate relationship with this thing. All right. In um, 9-11, 2001, I was a freshman in high school. And I was in my science class, Earth-Space Science. Asked me what I learned, I don't remember. <laughs> but I remember sitting there in class and then one of our other teachers came in through the door and she said, you won't believe this, but planes just hit the, the World Trade Center. A plane just hit the World Trade Center. And at that time, in our high school, we had TV, so my teacher turns on the TV and is like, okay, we're just going to watch for like five minutes to see what's going on. And as we're watching live, another plane hits the other tower. And we were like, whoa, what is going on? And then from there, we're just processing it as a class. I go to my next period, and then they make an announcement that they're ending school early that day. They want our parents to come and take us home. And I remember going home and very seldomly in the LaFrance household, (coughs) everyone glued to the TV wanting to watch the same thing, but we were all watching the news that day. And repeated phrases were coming up. This was a terrorist attack. Um, Radical Islam, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, et cetera. These were the repeated phrases within a 24-hour news cycle that I kept hearing as I was watching and trying to make sense of what I was witnessing that day. You know, after that, within the next 48 hours, it felt like my entire community started transforming. Out of nowhere, flags, the American flags started popping up at every single house in my community. People in my community, older gentlemen in my community who were about 40, 50, were like, man, I wish I could go fight for our freedoms. Even the vegan in my neighborhood, who's like the peaceful guy in the entire world, wanted to pick up arms. See, how was our entire community transformed within a 48-hour cycle? Ideologies. They were using words and phrases to galvanize a people, to become a people who could look at something as potentially heinous or on the other end of um, the people who were a part of the attack on the towers to view other people as their rivals. You see, men and women of scripture, when they talk about Principalities and powers, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about things and ideologies that influence you in such a way it gets you to act as they would want you to act. And I believe that these spiritual forces operate on every level. We're going to read a story today about the Apostle Paul and his journey in Athens. That's an important story if you're going to understand the cultural moment that we're in. Because when Paul goes to Athens, he proclaims the gospel in an area that is just filled with idols. Now, for many of you, you may be wondering, why are we talking about this? I'm not filled with idols. I serve the living God, the holy God, and I don't feel the same temptation. Let me just say this. Everyone who has any sort of social media or watch any sort of news, this is impacting you to one degree or another. Now, the main goal is to understand the degree to which you're being impacted. But outside of you if you don't feel like you're being deeply impacted, it's impacting the world around us. Like, it is causing division in our world around us. So last week we talked about what it means to be a kingdom citizen, and today I'm going to call back to that. I'm going to call back to what it means to follow Jesus, but today I might offend you today, and that's okay. Come on. I learned a long time ago if you're going to offend, offend with intent. It's horrible to offend someone when you didn't mean to. But when you did mean to, amen? <laughs> At least we could start a conversation. Maybe I offend you, and you're like, "I don't believe that," and we could start a dialogue, which is okay. There's not enough people talking to each other about some of these things, and that's okay. So if you feel that pricking your heart, like, "Ooh, you offended me," I invite conversation with me. Now, if there's more than three people trying to talk to me, then obviously we're, we're at the email level, and I don't write well, and I probably won't write you back. So you got to wait till next week to talk to me. But it's really important that we talk about this as a people of God. Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts is the story about how the church spread from Judea to the ends of the earth. And in this part of the story, Paul ventures on to Athens. Athens at the time, once upon a time, not in the present moment of when Paul went there, was the intellectual capital of the world. And so Paul comes here and proclaims Jesus. And we're going to read that story. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day-to-day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and historic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him. May we know what these new teachings is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians, this is Luke's commentary as he reflects on the Athenians. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about, the, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From this one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole world. He marked out their appointed times and histories and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stones, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And this is an intense experience for the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Think about it. He grew up Jewish and he's in a place filled with idols. They even have an idol marked out to an unknown God. And Paul was a monotheist. And so clearly he has in his heart probably Deuteronomy 6 about worshiping one God and loving him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And so when he approaches this group and they say, man, we want to hear you speak, he's like, I got to find common ground with them. I got to find a place where we could connect. And then from there, I can present and explain to people what the gospel is all about. So what does Paul do? He goes to his normal approach. He, he talks about Genesis 1 and 2. He's like, you guys at a base level, I think, agree that everyone was made from God. Remember, in the, during that time, most people were largely religious. Very few atheists, what we would consider Christianity, actually was known as the atheist of that time because they believed in one God in particular. And so Paul is approaching them. He shares this story that they all come from. And to be sure, Paul is adapting his gospel to his audience. Some of the things missing in this presentation is the cross. As we were reading that, Paul doesn't mention anything about the cross. Because he's like, well, these guys probably would instantly be offended by that. Let me talk about the resurrection. I'm not necessarily going to bring up the cross. Let me talk about Jesus and him being raised from the dead. You see, Paul first focuses on what they have in common. People have called this the inner apologetics. Like, there's common ground for most of us in here if we spend enough time with each other. We may disagree politically religiously, culturally, but then we sit down and be like, do you like coffee? I like coffee. Whoa, you're human. And we connect. Or maybe it's sports. Maybe it's just a love for nature. Something at some base level, we find a common ground, and we can share from that experience and start to build a relationship. And so this is what Paul is trying to do in his presentation of the gospel message to the people in Athens. But then Paul, at this point, stays away from the crucifixion just for now. I'm almost certain later he would explain to the people who did believe. You see, Paul's audience is Athenians. They don't know the story of God, so he doesn't lace this entire message with scripture. He doesn't say, here's a scripture, there's a scripture. He's like, I'm trying to meet you where you are. I'm trying to contextualize this message for you so you could better understand this message. You see, when Paul uses resurrection, he's not using it in the sense that the Platonic belief was. Like, Some of us still believe in the Platonic belief that your soul somehow will be immortal and live forever. But when the Jewish person said resurrection, they were talking about a bodily resurrection. They weren't simply talking about souls just floating around doing their thing. But they were talking about a body being reanimated and living forever. And so Paul's gospel message is you guys are filled with a desire to want to worship. And worship, I honestly believe, comes from a deep spot in our lives to want to see something good come about. Most people worship different gods and different beings because they wanted something, whether they agriculture, they wanted rain, they wanted fertility, they wanted something good. And he's like, you guys are deeply connected to your worship. You even have a altar to an unknown God. You're like, someone out there may not have their God represented here. We're going to build an altar for them, and they can get worship. And he's like, I want to explain to you that God is the one who created everything, and he doesn't live in temples. You know, at the end of this message, a couple of people believed. To believe is to switch allegiance. You know, now in modern day, if I say I believe something, I usually don't switch my allegiance. Yeah, you know, I usually stay consistent. Like, I believe Android phone, phones work. Shout out to you if you have an Android. Yes. But, but in the LaFrance household, we, we, team, we team iPhone. I don't switch. I'm like, I can acknowledge your phone can probably send text messages. It has its equivalent of FaceTime, and I'm pretty sure it has apps on there and all the other things. It got everything. It got everything. <laughs> Yet and still, when it comes to this, my iPhone, I'm like, this is, this is, this is good. This is right. <laughs> in, in, in the first century, they would, not, they would have accused me of not believing that Android is good. You want to know why? Because I would still be using an iPhone. They'd be like, you don't believe it. We have allowed that understanding of belief to impact us still. When we say we believe in the living God. You see, the beliefs that the ancient Athenians had impacted every area of their lives. And so what Paul tried to do here in Athens, proclaim the gospel, there are a million and one competing messages for you trying to transform you right now. We, we see it on the YouTube ads. We see it in, in, in the things that we learn, our education system. There's everything trying to change us, influence us. And not all of it's bad, but some of it, if we're not mindful of, of what it's trying to do, we become a sort of person that we don't intend to be. Yeah, someone's up there dancing. It's probably Stephen. (laughs) Stephen is my two-year-old son. If he could dance like that and make that kind of noise, then pray for us what it's like trying to sleep in that house. Um, What is idolatry and why should we care? You know, for a long time, when I first became a believer, I thought idolatry was just worshiping of legit like gods like Zeus, and that is that. And I'm like, okay, no one does idolatry anymore. I've not met a worshiper of Zeus. I've not met a worshiper of Athena. I've not met a worshiper of Mars. I've never met any worshipers in that sense. But that isn't what God is most concerned about when it comes to idolatry. It's what the worship produces. And so to talk about idolatry, we have to go back to why God called Israel not to worship. Idols. You see, the worship of images made to represent God or, or the God of Israel was prohibited primarily because of what it does to you. Let's go to Psalm 35, 135, verse 18. In Psalm 135, verse 18, the psalmist is speaking and he's talking about the amazing things of God. And then he comes down and he starts criticizing idols. And he says, they're work's made of hand and they don't listen and they don't do this and they don't do that. But then in verse um, 135, verse 18, here's the main thing that God was trying to help his people understand about idol worship. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You are what you worship. You are what you worship. It, it, It just is really difficult. Now, the problem is in 2022, it's hard to know what you're actually worshiping. You have to be super intentional about understanding what you're worshiping. And so when Paul approached the Athenians, he was trying to help them. You're worshiping something, but I want you to worship the right thing that's going to produce human life and human flourishing. Old school men like John Calvin and uh, Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in their context, when they were preaching the gospel, they, they, they wanted to help people understand that idolatry could be any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And I think that definition is helpful. However, when the prophets in the Old Testament are critiquing the nation of Israel, they're not just critiquing good things that's run afoul. They're critiquing the actual worship and practice of people. When they called Israel to repent from idol worship, they were calling them to abandon the story of the idols with its values. Idols require allegiance. Idols, Israel's idols just didn't, called them to love them too much. It actually called them to submit and worship. And so Israel, whether it was um, the, the kids being sacrificed by mileage or the other different gods in the Mesopotamian area, you started to become what you worship. And so the prophets were like, get away from that. Abandon that story. Because every idol has a story that it tells. A story, I would argue, in 2022, a story of human flourishing. This is the reason why we all get caught up in in ideologies. They tell a story of human flourishing. Who doesn't want humanity and on a personal level yourself to flourish? And so it's very tricky. Here's a quote from David Cozy. He wrote this book called um, Politics and Illusions. Every ideology is based on taking something out of creation's totality, raising it above that creation and making the latter revolve around it and serve it. It is further based on the assumption that this ideology or idol has the capacity to save us, save us from some real or perceived evil in the world. Caitlin Chess shares political participation has a unique ability to inspire idolatry in people primarily because it is so often involves promises of protection, provision, requires sacrifices, legitimizes authority, and inspires submission and worship. Idolatry manifests itself in ideologies. You know, most of us in here, when you go to the voting booth or you go to the poll, you're not thinking, oh, yeah, man, I'm going to become like this political party that I worship. Most of you. Now, some of you actually do. You're like, no, I'm in completely aligned with all ideologies that I see in the voting booth and I see in the polls. And I would argue as followers of Jesus, we have to be careful of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ideologies reveal what narrative we believe. We're all being told a story, like Charles Taylor said. We're all being told a story. We all live into a story. In our secular age, even the unbelief are believing a story, whether conscious or unconscious, and so we have to be very careful what narrative we're living into. <clears throat> Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist, says, and he, he, he's, he's a non believer, but he says we, says, we believe almost anything our team supports. Have you ever seen that? You know, you're just like, man, I, it, it doesn't matter. I could put up a political statement up here if I don't put the particular party. Depending on where we think it comes from, we might instantly reject it. But if I put the p- particular party or the saying, then you're like, no, I accept it. If so I could put up here, love your enemy. All of us, let's just pretend we're not Christians. Some people are like, oh, blah, 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 blah. But once I say a quote from Jesus Christ, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm totally with loving your enemy. Because we needed to know who it was from first. And so it isn't so much the ideas that we're critiquing. We are a part of the particular party. And imagine Paul going into Athens and having to preach the gospel and understanding that he has to untether the people who are hearing the message from these ideologies and to draw them in. Our team gets our allegiance more than our particular beliefs. Like we just support our teams. I am a Dolphin fan through and through. We, we was doing good for a while, man. And then Tua got his concussion. And those are already days behind us, man. But I love all Miami sports teams. I appreciate all Miami sports teams. Who made me a Miami sports fan? The culture around me. The culture around me. Everywhere I went, we were singing Miami Dolphins. If you're from South Florida, Miami Dolphins number one. And then uh, I know my Patriots folks here, man. I, you guys been dominating us as long as I've been alive. <laughs> like just been dominant. When I saw Brady leave, I was just like, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But then the Bills started getting going, and you're like, all right, maybe another decade of darkness. <laughs> but the challenge is. I was formed in a culture that I had really, by the time I was six years old, I decided I liked all these teams and there was no reason other than this is what I was swimming in. That happens to all of us. You wake up in the morning and you realize, I hate these sort of people, I like these sort of people, I like this sort of team, and by seven years old, you already have a formed opinion, even if you can't find any concrete reason for it. Do we think all of a sudden at 18 years old that stops? 20 years old, 30 years it continues. And so we as people who follow Jesus have to consistently reorient ourselves to the narrative of the gospel. I went too far. You know, Israel was charged to recite the Shema. The Shema was an ancient prayer where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. They were charged to recite that consistently, and it's almost certain because they knew the threat of worshiping something else was always present every single time you woke up. Jesus adds to the Shema. In Mark 12, verse 28 to 31, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Verse 29, the most important one, Jesus answered is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. God's people need to be reoriented who we're worshiping. Our worship stain every component of our lives like we talked about last week with the kingdom of God. Like it needs to sustain every component of our life. Some political ideologies. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm not... And we're going to talk next week about freedom and how do we engage in the public arena. I think it's really important that one way we can love our neighbors is to engage in the public arena. But I don't want us to engage from the political ideologies that are already trying to hold us captive if we're not careful. Liberalism, you know, freedom from as opposed to freedom to. So the idea is that the self is deified. This is just the idea that, man, I want to make sure I protect the individual, the individual rights, the individual component. Like, so things like social bonds of marriage, family, community are always at threat to one degree because they threaten the individual. Like To be in a marriage requires compromise. And, and again, not, that say, not to say that liberalism doesn't have some truth in it. Actually, all these ideologies have some truth in it and that's where they get us. It's like, oh, this is mostly true or even somewhat true or at least this aspect is true. And so within this ideology, anything that calls to the collective can be very challenging because it's all about the individual. Conservatism. They make a monument of the perceived heyday. You know, like, wasn't life great in 1960, 1950, 1940, 1010? like wasn't life amazing it calls back to this heyday and it, and it memorializes this, situ, uh, this situation and say that's where life needs to be and almost 9 times out of 10 it's only from your particular social context within your particular frame and it almost ignores everything that was happening around you that's usually how the heyday works yeah. and like, wasn't it great and then you know like, really quickly I'll share about my family experience my family is amazing I remember my ninth birthday it was awesome I had some ice cream cake, and I think I got some new Power Rangers. That was one of, and when I think back to my childhood, that was one of the most awesome days of my life. Ask my sister about that day. It was the day she realized that there was some deep dysfunction in this family. So if I say, "Man, wasn't it? What if we went back to December 16 when I was nine years old? How great would that?" My sister would be like, "Why are you bringing me back to torture?" Because. We have to be careful, and so we deify traditions. Nationalism, a person's country, race, or religion, becomes paramount. That becomes the, the uh, it, it becomes to embody the us versus them situation. The collective becomes deified. And so within the national um, ideology, we become super tribal. Americans versus here, um, Caribbeans versus here. Germans versus here, Europeans versus there, we become super tribal. And this is where, if we're not careful, if you adopt this wholeheartedly, that's where racism and exceptionalism start to, start to develop, it, it seeps well within this mindset. And really the heart of it is nationalism says I'm more of an image bearer than anyone else, whatever my particular group, creed, or religion. Democratism, you know, we love voting on everything. Yeah, you're like, hey guys, what are we gonna eat? Raise your hand for pizza. Is, you never get, you're never gonna get anything done. Well, so that's where we are. That's where the majority binds onto the other, and so it becomes well, if it's ten people, four six people wanted this, four didn't want this, and so your your four opinion doesn't even matter, and so the popular opinion becomes deified. You know, a per a, a, a complaint that a person. <coughs> A complaint, a complaint that a person could potentially have is nullified because that's not the majority opinion. And so it's not given proper treatment. That's, and so it becomes discouraging if you're not in the majority opinion for whatever reason. And the socialism, you know, it, it's a collective means for striving for individual equality. And so outcomes become deified. Now, some of you are like, no, I'm, I'm a socialist and I don't believe that. Or I'm a, a nationalist and I don't believe that. Or I'm conservative or I'm liberal. I don't believe that. And you feel offended. I told you before I might offend you and that's okay here's my challenge with all of these particular things and we're going to talk more about it next time um, we meet up there's some truth in the idea that as Christians we need to make sure we are taking care of the individual like if we're going to do community right, individuals need to be seen and heard. There is a degree of Christianity where we can look at certain traditional things and we can say, man, this is good. This is right. Like taking communion weekly. That's a tradition that Jesus laid down. It's good. It's right. Nationalism. There's nothing wrong with liking where you're from, what community came from. It's just when you elevate it to the point that that makes you better than anyone else. Democratism. There's nothing wrong with voting on what type of chairs we're going to sit in. You know, like, do we want blue or red chairs? Who cares? I don't care. Maybe you care. That's okay. And I respect that. But there's certain things we can't vote on. There's certain things we just need to say this is true, even if we're the only one saying it's true. And we follow Jesus regardless. Socialism. We want to make sure we're taking care of people, that their needs are met, that, that they feel like, man, there's a degree of equality here. But A, the majority can't force that. And B, it needs to be done out of freedom. And C, it's really difficult to determine outcomes. And so as a Christian, you find yourself home where? In the kingdom of God, where do you find your home? It's really difficult. And so people are vying for your attention. Say, hey, come do this, come do that. And you're like... My my politics is Jesus, Lord, and I got to figure out how to make Jesus Lord in this situation and how to love people well in the midst of it. Ephesians chapter two. You know, when we were looking at Acts chapter 17. Paul was trying to help them understand that the resurrection meant a new reality. If we believe Jesus rose from the dead, we are living in a new reality, guys. It's a game changer. That means the way that the world is set up does not have the final say because death did not have the final say on Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient... All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, um, the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through Christ and is, and is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance. <clears throat> the powers and principalities are not disembodied spirits. Simply. They are inhabiting the air We breathe, but also our institutions and our structures. They, biblically speaking, they're not just seen and simply unphysical, but they're also physical as well. You see, the Bible insists that they are more than meets the eye. In the biblical view, the powers are one and the same time, visible and invisible, earthly and heavenly, spiritual and institutional. Powers such as... government, physical manifestations like buildings and all this other stuff and how they go about doing these things, there is an atmosphere that dictates that. How many of you have ever had a job where it was easy to do good or easy to do wrong? You know, I worked at... I'm not going to put them out there because they might sue me. Um, you know, it's funny how people always find you when you say the one thing that could get you sued. But I worked at a particular place where we were doing some stuff and they were like, hey... We were working with some children, and it was a little bounce house. And I said, hey, the the bounce house is leaking. And they're like, don't worry about it. I'm like, oh, but the kids could (coughs) fall and whatever. They shouldn't be bouncing. And I just remember being 17 years old. I'm like, all right, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And when when the bounce house did fall apart, everyone was like, what happened? And we all pretended like we were shocked. But it was just easy for us not to do the right thing. When I was working at Starbucks, God bless Starbucks, it was easy to slander. You know, being in the workplace, it's just like you came in and you're just like, let's talk about people. Customers, oh, look at this guy. He's like a poo-poo head and all this other stuff. It was just easy to slander because there was a power at work. But then I've been to other places where, you know, you walk in. My, my, my basketball coach, rest, rest his soul, he died. None of us, none of us ever cursed in his presence. And it wasn't like he ever said, hey, here's the rule, guys, you can't curse. It's just something about his spirit, his household, everything else. We'd walk in and all of us slowly but surely conform to what it was to be in his household. Like in my household, when you're done eating, you put the dishes away, you do this. In his household, you're done eating, you pick up your dish, you say, is anyone else finished? Can I get someone water? It's like instantly being in this household, we all became hospitable for whatever reason. (laughs) The moment we walked out, we were like, we're free. We're we're free to be selfish again. (laughs) But there was never a stated rule to be hospitable. This is, what the, this is what the scriptures talk about when they say the powers and principalities, there's, there's atmospheres. Prayerfully, you come here and you feel like it's easy for me to follow Jesus. Not, man, I come here and I got to fake. I come here and I got to pretend. Politically speaking, as we've been talking about, the politics form us and it teaches us how we should engage with whoever we consider enemies. You see, following the ways... Of the ideologies can be very dangerous and it can lead us to death. This is what Paul is talking about. But Paul uses here in Second I mean um, Ephesians chapter 2 the language of baptism when he's like, You were dead in your sins, but you were raised up with Christ. Our baptism points to a new reality that these isms no longer reign over our lives. We are new citizens. But how do we engage? That's what we're gonna talk about next week. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Our struggle, our struggle, we are in theory should be struggling because the world is consistently trying to get us to dislike and like someone consistently trying to form us. You know, the proper name for Satan comes from the Hebrew hasatan, and that, that name just means adversary. Everyone can be an adversary. Everyone has acted as an adversary to some extent. Now, when they use adversary in the scriptures, they're talking about adversary in terms of in opposition to the kingdom of God, in opposition to the ways of the kingdom of God. And Satan, in the New Testament, his name still means adversary, but also accuser. And Satan is, an adversarial, is in adversarial mode against the kingdom of God. The ideologies we worship, if, if we went to the logical conclusion to each, scene, each one that we had a couple of slides ago, we end up going against the kingdom of God. To a large extent, we end up going against the kingdom of God. And so many of us are okay with that sometimes. Now, I think as a follower of Jesus and as a minister, I think the church should take some responsibility for that. We have not always taught the best on the kingdom of God and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's right. And we need to make sure we do an incredible job moving forward. Like you have citizenship in heaven. That does not mean one day when you die. That means your citizenship is presently here in this moment and you're called to live an alternative life. And so the church needs to grow in how we can present the kingdom and make sure that the kingdom is at the forefront of our minds. Amen. But then there's an individual responsibility. This is where those spiritual disciplines. I know sometimes, you know, reading the Bible could get boring. Hearing spiritual things could get boring. And, but we get to a point where we end up, because we're bored, we end up sucked into the two-minute TikTok video that just de- debunks all of our ideologies. For the more mature people who don't have TikTok, your thing is like Facebook. Like You guys get on there and you just like go in, man. Um, we're praying that we could be set free from Facebook as much as the young generation could be set free from TikTok. In between, guys, we're like on Instagram and so we show a photo that speaks more than what we actually write. You're like, oh man, I'm sad. Photo. Um, <laughs> that's just where we are. We don't use words. We use feelings. But it's really, it's really important that on a personal level, embody, look at the Gospels, read them, try your best to read them, read teachings on the Gospel. And if any teaching that prevents you, if you're paying attention, that prevents you from listening to Jesus, then that means in that area you don't agree with that teaching. If you think any one of these ideologies is the definition of the kingdom of God, I, I, I hate to break it to you, you've been deceived. You've been deceived. But good news, there's always hope and there's an opportunity for repentance. And so I want to call us to pay attention to the powers and principalities in our lives. As we, as Paul, go into Athens and we see these different ideas, we proclaim Christ, but we don't give in to the ideologies that we see around us. Instead, we proclaim Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about how do we engage. I'm not encouraging us not to engage. I'm just saying we got to engage as followers of Jesus. That's how we should engage. Um, We're going to have a moment of reflection and then Bob's going to come up here and explain communion.